Welcome to Mumble Jumble, where we talk about ideas with people that make the world go round. I'm your host, William Yuan Yi. David Ignatius is a best-selling novelist and award-winning foreign affairs columnist for the Washington Post, where he has covered the Middle East and the CIA for over four decades. Previously, he was an adjunct lecturer at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government and currently serves as a senior fellow to the Future of Diplomacy program. His espionage fiction novels have been widely praised for their realism. His first novel, Agents of Innocence, was described and featured on the CIA website as a novel, but not fiction. His newest book, The Paladin, a spy novel, was released this May and is available now. I highly recommend. It's gripping, tense, suspenseful, and will have you careening on the edge of your seat throughout. David, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Instead of coming to you from our usual studio on the corner of West 114th Street and Broadway in New York, we're pre-recording this interview over Zoom. How have you been holding up amidst this quarantine? You know, we're like everybody, I'm going a little stir-crazy, but um, we're getting some great walks. Uh, my wife is a computer scientist, so she's able to do her work uh, remotely. And my daughter is a doctor at Johns Hopkins, so she's treating patients and going to try to try to save us all. So we're as a family, we're trying to cope. Yeah, that's great. That's great to hear. And Johns Hopkins is doing incredible work with some of their data analysis of the COVID um, stuff. So that's that's amazing. Um, yeah, so why don't we hop right in? We can talk Good. about The Paladin, a spy novel, um, which I absolutely enjoyed, especially at a time when we're all stuck at home and social distancing. I loved reading it, living vicariously through Michael Dunn, our protagonist, traveling around the world across the Cayman Islands in Taiwan. What inspired you to write this book? So uh, there were two things that got me started. The, the first is obviously what we're all living through, this sense of all of the information around us being manipulated, uh, the, the way in which we increasingly don't know whether things are true or false. I wanted to imagine a plot in which a CIA officer got caught in that uh, thicket of manipulation and deception. I also got really interested in trying to create a character who in some ways embodied the world that elected Donald Trump. So I decided a book I loved called Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance uh, evokes somebody from the Rust Belt, from, from this Midwestern area where people saw their lives destroyed as, as manufacturing moved away. And I decided that my character would be from a place I know, because I started as a journalist in Pittsburgh, uh, a little town uh, just east of Pittsburgh on the Monongahela River called McKeesport, which used to be thriving steel production town, now looks like truly a city that was defeated in a war. The houses were all boarded up, everybody's left. And so that's where my hero's from. And you know, th those, those two things, wanting to have a, a person who's of the world that elected Donald Trump caught in a nightmare plot of manipulation in which his career, his marriage, everything that matters to him is destroyed. Those seem to me to be interesting things to work with as I got started. So there's this one dialogue exchange between Michael Dunn and his friend and mentor, Roger McGee. Dunn says they're like journalists, but worse. They print anything they want. And, and you know, you mentioned this book being in conversation with the larger world in American politics that elected Donald Trump. I think here you're kind of pointing to something similar 
a presidential administration that's been unusually hostile to journalists who don't report stories to its liking. I guess, do you worry about the state of the freedom of press in America today? Do you, as a journalist, how do you navigate this media landscape? I worry about it a lot. Uh, anytime that my colleagues and I are attacked as the enemy of the people, uh, I just uh, feel that I'm in a, not in the kind of democracy that uh, uh, was built on the First Amendment, was built on uh, our uh, right, our need to have information, our respect for the people who provide information. We're, we're in a different uh, place now. Uh, my novel deals with these issues of, of how we uh, determine what's true and what's false, and without giving away the plot, Traditional journalism ends up being one of the purifying uh, agents at the at the end of my story, but yeah, I'm 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 genuinely concerned. I think that we're entering a new era, so really the subject matter of the book, in which it won't be just a question of fake news, manipulated information, but fake events, images video and sound that can be created in, by computers so that uh, fake David is every bit as, as real seeming as real David. It's very difficult for people to, to know uh, which is which. I think that landscape uh, technologically is already here. The, the ability to create through generative adversarial networks um, highly real seeming video imagery we're there. Um, our intelligence agencies, our social media platforms like Facebook and Google are thinking a lot about how they'll detect what's real so they'll know in my interaction with your viewers, is this real or did somebody create uh, a, f a fake podcast with David Ignatius? How will they know? Right. Um, and, and I mean, your novel talks a lot about the dark side of technology, talking about modern cybersecurity issues. You know, in 2020, we're already seeing reports that Russia plans to meddle and intervene again in our upcoming presidential elections. China was spreading misinformation to try to stop the election of Tsai Ing-wen in Taiwan. How do we as a society prepare for this new frontier of, of cyber warfare? So I'd, I'd say two things. Um, first, um, the government has to be vigilant about its own systems. We don't want our intelligence agencies to be manipulated into thinking there's a war somewhere and then we're dragged into yet another conflict on the basis of false evidence. We don't want our financial markets to be manipulated by events that could cause runs on banks or other financial institutions or report that a drug that doesn't work actually works so as to move the stock market value of the company or any of the other uh, situations you, you can think of. So we want government to take it seriously, the, the big companies and financial institutions to take it seriously. But I, I think the most important part of this is, is that we as consumers of information have to take it seriously. I mean, in the end, we'll get the information media and the information media streams that we deserve if we're not vigilant about making sure that they're not polluted, if we don't insist on verifying that things are real, that, that information is not manipulated and spun, we'll end up with a, with a polluted stream. And you know, I, I, we'll, we'll fight like hectic to avoid it, but a lot of people won't. I mean, I'll just say one more thing. As we enter this era that my 
novel, a paladin tries to describe, where it's so hard to distinguish between truth and, and, and lies. The value of truth to people is going to increase. So financial companies, um, smart consumers, people who depend on knowing that their information is accurate will pay a lot to make sure that that's so. And I think that's, in, in a way, I hate to say it, because people who can afford the truth will get the truth and have ways of making sure that it's so. And people who can't will be in this kind of dirty internet world, you know, where anything that comes down the pipe, you know, people may jump at. And that worries me because, you know, that's the public as a whole. And I don't see how a democracy survives easily uh, when a lot of people are just believing stuff that isn't true. We see a little bit of that today, to be honest. Right. So one of the organizations we meet in this novel is Fallen Empire, which is led by an American named Jason Howe, who spreads misinformation. And ultimately, his goal is to top what he views to be corrupt Western democracies, which, which we've talked about already. Um, I guess this, these ideas of fake news, a lack of faith in the liberal international order that's kind of held our society together since World War II, um, I think that has a lot of people thinking, what is this world going to look like post-COVID-19? Um, what do you hope readers come away from this novel thinking about the current state of global affairs? Well, let's start with the question you were asking about, about Jason Howe, who's the character who runs Fallen Empire, which my hero, Michael Dunn, the CIA officer, is assigned to go chase. And Jason Howe, at the beginning of the book, is you know, a kind of WikiLeaks person. He's an information activist. He's kind of anarchistic in his views. He sees himself as a social bandit. That his idea is to, is to prey upon the wealthy manipulators, and he's a bandit attacking from the hills of information and just basically shooting at all the big fat targets. Over the course of the, of the novel, he comes to realize that that's dangerous, that he has destroyed uh, Michael Dunn, somebody who didn't deserve it. And so part of the story is him, uh, without giving too much away, wanting to reach out and, and address the, the mistakes that, that, that he's, he's, he's made. Um, so, you know, in terms of the world that we're, that we're heading toward after this moment that's really forced us to reevaluate everything in life, I think that's the truth about this COVID-19 lockdown is we look at everything and we think what really matters and what are we going to you know, build on. So one obvious answer is that we're learning about hygiene. And I don't know if I'll ever shake hands with anybody again. <laughs> it's just going to be, you know, let alone hug people. So, it, and I, I hope that um, better hygiene, being more careful about how we interact with, with each other, uh, being more respectful of the people who can, who can help us and protect us, doctors, epidemiologists, the people who really know things. I hope those will be few features of, of our world going forward. We'll, we'll be more hygienic about information. We'll be more respectful of experts who can give us information that we have some confidence because of who they are. It's true. I mean, look at, look at Dr. Fauci. I mean, he's this kind of you know, likable little Italian guy, uh, Italian-American. And, you know, he's just, I think he's become a very lovable, respected 
figure for Americans, even people who like Donald Trump, I think, probably like Dr. Fauci, because he's the person who we all know, he's prepared to tell Donald Trump he's wrong. If he thinks he's wrong, he's just going to say it. So he's a source of authoritative information, and people want it. And I think the reason, just recently, that, that President Trump decided to bring back these coronavirus uh, task force briefings is because he realized people want more Fauci. It's not that they want more Trump right now. Uh, you know, his fans may want more, but I think I think the ordinary person wants to see Dr. Fauci uh, and to hear. They want to straight. People are scared, and when you're scared, you turn to the people who you think will help make you safer. So I hope that's, you know, that's, I hope our world looks more like that, more like the things we're learning right now. Right. I think you bring up this interesting point about fear. And I think some of that fear has resulted in, we've seen increasing incidences of anti-Asian bias and attacks. Um, I, I think in terms of on this topic of a post COVID-19 world, some international relations theorists are talking about, is this something that's going to fuel China's rise as China sort of continues to be a leader in, in dishing out medical equipment to, to countries in need, while the U.S. seems to continue turning inward and we're having our own inter internal struggles? I guess this, the opposite side of that is the U.S. and China can actually collaborate to resolve this issue, which we kind of saw with the 2014 Ebola outbreak. Do you have any thoughts or predictions on, on this topic? Well, I think, I think you put your, your finger on one of the most interesting questions, which is um, emerging from this period, will the Chinese system of centralized, authoritarian, top-down uh, response to crisis be seen as preferable to the disorganized, noisy, you know, uh, more bottom-up, self-organizing system? And I think right now there's some evidence to support each. I mean, the, the Chinese system failed pretty badly in the beginning. I mean, right. you know, the, the country where the party runs everything, the party doesn't want to look bad, people don't want to give the party bad news. So in Wuhan, whatever happened, and I'm one of the people who think it's important that China say more about the origins in Wuhan. I think that's, that's in China's interest and everybody's interest. But in the beginning, they obviously tried to suppress information. The poor Dr. Li Wenzhang, uh, the hero doctor who ended up dying of, of COVID-19, tried to spread the word. He was arrested. You know, the local party officials who were trying to deal with it, they were sacked. They brought in the PLA. They brought in top cadres. You know, they tried to manage and manipulate it. So that doesn't make the Chinese system look too good. And I think there are a lot of people who go to Dr. Lee's uh, little web Weibo page or whatever it is and leave little messages are saying, um, we, want, we want the truth. We Chinese people want the truth as much as anybody. I've spent time in Hong Kong on the streets with demonstrators there. I've been in Taiwan. I mean, I, I think the idea that people in Asia don't care about democracy is just false. I think that... That that's that that's not not true. So, the, you know, the Chinese model has had some obvious problems. Our American model had gross problems, I and mean, we have a, a political leadership now. It just has been disorganized and in denial. I mean, you know, the so um, in a sense, I think this picture gives a false picture of of democracy. Just as she's 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 really good at running an authoritarian China. You know, less competent. Uh, General Secretary might give you a different impression of how the Chinese system works. But I'll just note one interesting part of this. 
So our disorganized haphazard system uh, produces, um, you know, different results. But, you know, among other things, uh, we're a federalist system. Our, our federal government's response has been, generally speaking, awful. Many of the states have responded, I think, quite well. I think they've been resourceful. I think they've been courageous. You know, everybody likes watching Andrew Cuomo on TV because he looks like the governor is just trying to deal with things. We have had some bad governors, but, you know, a lot of good governors from both parties. So federalism, you know, maybe there's a, a that in that decentralized response or something. And then a, the final point, um, all of our uh, private um, universities, biotech companies, big pharma companies, that, that this whole diverse universe of brain power in America is now self-organizing to find both vaccines and therapies that will work. Will that process produce, uh, you know, driven by profit, will that produce a faster set of therapies and, and vaccines than the Chinese um, uh, we have no idea. Nobody could predict. But I, but I, my guess, based on past evidence, is that the U.S. system, U.S.-led system, will probably do pretty well in this process. And that's going to be what people, that's the moment where people are going to say, thank God, you know, we, we and, and they'll be very grateful to the, to the companies, the people, and the system that produce that. So I, I think it's too early. A lot of people are saying Chinese have won, you know, they're going to be the COVID-19 winners. I think it's a little early to make that bet. That's that's really interesting. Um, yeah, so why don't we shift uh, back to the novel? Um, I think one question that really arises is what exactly is a journalist? I think you kind of play <laughs> around and, and challenge the identity of journalism and what that role entails. Like, is someone who spreads min misinformation believes that they're, you know, working in the public interest? Is that a journalist? So I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that question. So I think uh, the reality is that the First Amendment protects speech right. and journalism is, is a part of speech, but the line between who's a journalist and who isn't in the age when your everybody's iPhone makes them an instant publisher and also, you know, a video channel, um, it's pretty hard to draw. And so I, I think citizen journalists as they as they style themselves uh, are a part of of our world and, and that's great and they you know they should generally should have the same protections and also liabilities for false information that that, that uh, other journalists do um i th i think to me the the benefit of what i was trained to do i've worked for two organizations in my career the wall street journal and the Washington Post, I'm embarrassed, but that's, you know, over 40 plus years. Um, the th what we were trained to do, which was gather information and then curate it and decide as best we could what was true and what wasn't. I still think that's a pretty good mo model. And I think the model that more is like, we're going to dish the information to our team that our team wants to hear. We're not in the business of challenging your biases, but kind of reinforcing them. You know, I think... I think um, the, the liabilities of that approach to journalism, the journalism free-for-all kind of flatter, you know, all the different horizontal connections, liabilities are pretty obvious. And I think you see in the tremendous success of the Washington Post and the New York Times, 
Wall Street Journal in their long line. People are paying money. I mean, the, you know, the paywalls end up. Right. New York Times is making a ton of money right now. Why? Because it's a really good product and people will pay for it. So, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, people will vote with their dollars just as so they vote with their clicks. If they click on stuff that's unreliable, they'll get more of it. Uh, more like this. So that's, that's the law. Uh, that's the basic algorithm. You know, you like that? Yeah, we'll give you more like that. But right now, people are clicking on the New York Times and, and the Washington Post. They want more like what we do. So, I mean, on this issue of fake news, if this, you know, comes around back again in 2020, you've covered the CIA extensively, written a lot of novels about it. Do you feel that our intelligence agencies are, are well positioned and prepared for that threat? I think that they're certainly um, uh, active in trying to um, see these uh, invasions and manipulations when they come. I, there's a task force uh, at the NSA, NSA and Cyber Command that was very active in the 2018 midterm elections. They've said publicly, I've written columns about this, that they feel they were successful in deterring further Russian manipulation. Uh, it's obvious uh, that the Chinese have learned from the Russian playbook that as tensions between the US and China have worsened. I think the Chinese are, are really trying to use their tools to exacerbate conflict, uh, social uh, dis dissension and, and uh, turmoil in the US. I think we're such a ripe target. I made the point recently in a review of a book that I really commend to your, your viewers by Thomas Ridd called Active Measures, that the key uh, variable in this ability to manipulate us is us. Mm. And by us, I mean citizens, but I also mean people like me who, who are conveyors of information. If, if we get so jazzed up by the manipulation subject, that's all people think about, it's all people talk about, pretty soon people won't believe anything. And I think that's really the goal that Russian disinformation specialists have always had. That they want people to be so disoriented by what's coming at them, so mistrustful of information, so ready to go after Fox News or MSNBC or whoever, that they just don't trust anything. It's, it's all it's all baloney. I don't believe anyone. And that's that's the mo that's the moment that our adversaries have dreamed of, where Americans become so cynical they just. They don't trust anybody. They don't trust any politician. They don't trust any information source. It's just a free-for-all. And then that, you know, that's, that's where I think we really need to be worried. Because, like, how do you run a democracy on total mistrust of everything? I don't think it's possible. And that, that actually gets that, – that got exactly to my next question I was going to ask. Um, this book – as I read it, I couldn't help but think it was a sort of ode to the civil servants and the people who work across our intelligence community in various capacities. And we're seeing when people in our government are contravening some of the conclusions that our intelligence community reaches, whether it's on this COVID outbreak, whether it's on Russian meddling in the election. How threatening is the fact that our leadership distrusts the CIA? How threatening is that to our democracy? So I, I think it's, I think it's, a, I mean, just we can try to imagine uh, from outside that world what it must be like to go to work and read that the president of the United States thinks that you and your colleagues with whom in many cases you risked your 
life um, are part of some conspiracy to manipulate the country. I mean, it just, it's got to be um, deeply demoralizing and depressing. The CIA has uh, a tradition, you know, they work for good presidents and bad. The CIA is always getting beaten up by somebody. I mean, right? It's not, this is not unique. Um, and they, they seem to have the morale and the discipline to keep, to keep going. But at some point, I have a feeling people begin to say, you know, this just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to risk your neck um, doing work that isn't appreciated. And um, if we end up with politicized intelligence agencies or a politicized FBI, where the FBI is just so scared, you know, having watched the careers of so many people be destroyed, that people just are just, you know, we know what happens. People just, just lock up. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll be in real trouble. We'll, we'll, have, we'll have an intelligence agency that isn't active in, in, in identifying and, and understanding threats against our country that isn't good, for example, seeing the next pandemic arise so we can prepare. We'll have an FBI that's so afraid of offending politicians that it just, does, it just doesn't do anything. You know, they'll, they'll go back to what they used to do, chasing bank robbers. Yeah, you know, J. Edgar Hoover, the legendary FBI chief, was great at figuring out what would not get him in trouble politically. You know, so he did the safe things. He, you know, he did and bank robbers. Then they thought, you know, going after the mafia was politically popular. So they did that. They went nuts. So it's like endless. Um, and, you know, politicized intelligence and law enforcement agencies will give us They'll give us uh, the kind of service we deserve if we don't protect them. So, so Steve Inskeep at NPR said um, of this book, sometimes you got to resort to fiction to tell the truth. And I think that's what <laughs> you're trying to do here. Just in terms of, um, I guess, overall takeaway, what do you hope that your readers get out of this book and come away thinking? So I, I hope people uh, who read The Paladin will think uh, carefully about how do I know something's true? How do, I, how do I protect myself against it? I hope they'll put themselves in the position of my hero, Michael Dunn. Imagine what would happen if your whole life, your job, your marriage, everything that matters to you was turned upside down by people who were trying to manipulate you. I hope that they'll understand how precious, just in, in economic terms, um, reliable information is. In the end, this novel converges toward manipulation of global financial markets and that is just it's just a finger clip away it's the technology is there so um in each of my books i've tried to talk about what i see is just over the next hill you know I, my last novel was about quantum spying between quantum computing spying between china and the u.s i think that's now big time reality i think just over the next hill is this creation creation of artificial realities and how we'll, how we'll detect them. So I hope people come away from the book thinking, you know, the foot soldiers, the blue collar CIA officers like Michael Dunn, I'm for them. I want them to succeed. I want to support them. And I hope they'll themselves be smarter consumers of, that, of information and, you know, pay for, you know, recognize the truth and pay for it because <laughs> that'll keep us all going. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so yeah, I want to wrap up here. Final question. Um, first of all, yeah, definitely read the Paladin. Paladin. It's a great read. Um, I really enjoyed it. And, and, you know, one thing I learned 
um, you know, aside from all the things we've previously discussed about cyber warfare, international relations, foreign media. Um, what, another thing I learned is the phrase lemon squeezer. So you bring up the phrase lemon squeezer. What is a lemon squeezer? Where does that so phrase come from? Once upon a time in the, in the ancient history of intelligence, you had secret writing. And secret writing could be uh, uncovered. You know, people would write things and lemon juice would be the, the kind of solvent that would make the secret writing appear or disappear. And so back in those days, people who were in this sort of technical intelligence of secret, secret communications were known as lemon squeezers. And I have a character mysteriously sign a letter um, uh, with that. Uh, and I won't say more about, about who that person is, but... Uh, but you're, I'm glad you. I'm glad you noted that that weirdo piece of uh, old fashioned tradecraft. Oh yeah, yeah. I think I'm gonna try to call someone a lemon squeezer today and just see what they're. You, you could is. watch it. You could, you know, <laughs> never know how people will take that. <laughs> Thanks for reading the book so carefully. I really appreciate that. No, David. I think it's a great book. I encourage all my listeners and viewers to uh, read it as well. And you, you really harp on some really important themes in American, American politics, politics, international politics that are going to be really important in the future. Um, so, David, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I really appreciate it. Great. Really glad we could do it. That's all for today. This episode was written, hosted, and produced by William Yi. You've been listening to Mumble Jumble, a WKCR News production. For more information about our podcast and WKCR News, please visit WKCR.org. Thank you for listening. See you next week.